If you need help getting Social Security Disability benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security Disability lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. All right, welcome back, everybody, and I hope everyone is staying safe out there. We're recording this in April of 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis where everything is shut down. We're all practicing social distancing. So again, I hope everybody is safe. Uh, Today I'm going to be speaking with attorney Holly Bush. Holly is an attorney in Johnson City, Tennessee, and she practices practices in the areas of social security disability and bankruptcy, which is actually what I do as well. And before attending law school at the University of Louisville School of Law, Holly was a teacher in Texas, which actually I think is a very, it's an excellent background for a lawyer because Good lawyers always want their clients to understand what's going on with their cases, and we're, you know, try to be teachers in some degree. Uh, but Holly now lives and practices in Johnson City, Tennessee, and I want to welcome her to the podcast to discuss a very important part of hearing preparation, and that is what you need to know about the medical part of your claim. So Holly, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I get a lot of calls and emails about is hearing preparation, because I think for most of our clients, hearings are sort of a, an unknown, kind of a black box. Nobody really knows what's going on. Of course, they're not public. They're all private, so you can't really go and watch a hearing. Unlike bankruptcy, which we both do, you can go watch bankruptcy hearings, you know, for hours at a time to see what was happening. You can't do that in Social Security. Right. So there's really no way to know what's going on. So obviously, as attorneys, we have to prepare our clients. So let's talk about something that I think people get confused about and they have questions about, and that is the medical parts of their claim. So give me a sense, uh, just from what you've done in your practice, how much do people need to know about the medical aspects of their disability claims? So as far as the medical aspects of their claims, one of the things that I think is important is for an attorney to know who their judge is. I think it's especially relevant to this topic because I I don't know what your experience has been, but mine has been that some judges, um, they want to hear a lot of details about the diagnosis and how that diagnosis came about, what symptoms people have. And then I have other judges who say, you're not a doctor, and I'm not a doctor, and I don't want to hear about your diagnoses. I want to hear about your symptoms. So um, I think that's one of the benefits of having an attorney is that that attorney can help steer the claimant's testimony more towards what the judge wants to hear and how they want to hear it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And what what resources? Also, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, what resources do you use? I know I use there's a website called disabilityjudges.com, I think. Um, what do you use to find out about judges? Um, I use that website also. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, um, the the area where I practice, we have, I have been in front of the same judges for such a long time um, that for the most part, 
I don't encounter a lot of new judges at this point. Um, when I do encounter a new judge, that's what I do. And I also reach out to attorneys in that area to get more details from them about how, how those judges practice. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because, you know, really to some degree who the judge is is almost as important as the substance of your case. It shouldn't be that way, but I think it probably is. And, and you're right. And, you know, I think just to add to that, you know, judges are busy, and these hearings last 45 minutes. So, you know, if you have a judge, like you said, who wants to know a lot about the medical part, you want to be prepared to give it to him quickly uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, trying to trying to figure it out on the fly. That's not what you want to do, especially, you know, not just the attorney but the client as well. So, okay, so we've obviously, the judge is a really important part. Um, what does the client need to know? I think the client needs to know what their diagnoses are, and I also think um, that depending on the uniqueness of their diagnosis, that they can actually offer a lot of insight both, both to the attorney and to the judge. Just because we um, have access to a lot of information doesn't mean that we can understand that claimant's individual symptoms from, from case to case. And I have had quite a few cases where, where claimants have had a unique diagnosis that the judge doesn't see a lot, and the judge really wants to get information from the claimant about you know, how, how these specific um, unique conditions create unique symptoms and impairments for them. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think, think if you found for claimants to know their diagnoses. Yeah, and I think if you probably find as I do that people, you know, if they if they're diagnosed with something, they're going to research it. They're going to know uh, actually a lot more than than you might think, uh, because this is what they, you know, this is their life now. So absolutely, if you right. know something, um, you know. But I think it's also important to, you know, speak spe with specifics as opposed to using. I got people say I have a slip disc. Well. That's not really a medical diagnosis. It's better to know, is it a herniated disc or a bulging disc, um, that sort of thing. Um, and the other thing I think that you know, I find in my practice is people sometimes think, well, I've got a herniated disc, therefore I'm disabled. Um, you know, obviously, the diagnosis does not equal an impairment. Uh, if you find that, do you find that as well? People sometimes confuse yeah. the, the yeah. diagnosis with, with being disabled. Yeah. And I also, one of, the, one of the things I hear often around here, and I don't know if this is a regional statement, but a lot of people around here say that they have nerves, um, mm -hmm. that, and, and they're usually referring to anxiety and depression and things like that, but, um, but it, it does take a little bit of time to actually figure out what the diagnosis is sometimes. Um, or, yep. or, you know, in relation to your example, a lot of my clients will say, you know, I've got a bad back. Well, what does that mean? What was your actual diagnosis? And I think it's very important for people to tell us um, whenever they can what date they were diagnosed with these problems. Um, and, and I always tell my clients they're going to get a gold star if they can tell me when the symptoms actually started because we all know you have symptoms long before you get a diagnosis. Yep. So yep. if they can tell me when their symptoms started, it may be in relation to an accident. It could be in relation to a repetitive movement in the workplace. Um, but if they, can, if they can describe the actual start date of those symptoms and then also tell me the date they, they got their final diagnosis, then that really helps us um, not only to find the records, but with the judge to establish that onset date and support the date of disability, which can be very important on down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that, that's, that's true because I know some judges that I've been in front of will look for, let's say, the date of an MRI. And they'll say, well, that's the onset date. But like you said, if you can show that you were having symptoms and you can document that, and you know, what you might use is even statements from coworkers and supervisors or an accident report.
reports that show this is when the actual accident happened, uh, even though the diagnosis may have been made six months later, that can put a lot more money in the claimant's pocket, right? I mean, this is... Uh, right, right, yeah. absolutely. And, and that, you know, along those lines, it's also important for, for a client to be able to tell us when they have um, the path of their treatment on that case. So they may have started out at the primary care physician's office and then gotten a referral to physical therapy and then gotten an MRI after that point. But it's, it's important for us to be able to have an idea of all the different places they got that treatment so that we can show this disability did start before the diagnosis, and here is the course that, of treatment that that case took. Do you, do you have your clients take notes, bring notes into hearings? I do not. Um, I, have, I have told them before that they can if they choose to, but that um, if, if they want to, I always want to see those notes prior to the hearing. And I only let them do that if they are really in a position where they have a very, very hard time remembering things. I tell them that my job is to remember things for you. So, um, so we go through a very detailed process of rehearsing and outlining all of their homework um, and their, uh, their medical records. Um, I always call that their homework when I send them home with things to do. Um, and then I take very detailed notes. And if they forget something that I think is important, I will bring them back to that in their testimony. Yeah, I think that's really what good lawyers do. Is you have to, you can't, you can't, you know, lead your clients. You can't put words in their mouth. But if they're missing something, you know, you have to be able to think on your feet and ask them questions and, and bring them back to the the topic at hand. Um, no, no question about that. No question. How, how, by the way, how how much in advance before a hearing do you typically do your pre-hearing meetings? Um, I usually do about a month in advance. Um, and and that gives, I think, the claimant an opportunity, it gives me an opportunity to thoroughly review their records, and it gives them an opportunity to kind of mull over the questions that they're going to be asked in the hearing. Um, I will say that even before we ever rehearse, the first time that I sit down with a claimant, I like to tell them, you, you know, there are going to be a lot of questions that you're asked in relation to your disability case that don't really make sense to you right now. So I want you to have have some opportunity to think about things like like restrictions. How long can you stand? How long can you walk? How long can you sit? How much weight do you lift at home? Those are questions that people generally can't answer right off the top of their head because they haven't sat and reflected on it. And so I try to tell them very early on in a case, these are questions you're going to be asked throughout your case. So just think about it. Think about, think about how long you can stand at the and can do the dishes before you're going to have to sit down. Pay attention to it. I also encourage them to ask the people around them and who they live with what kind of changes they have made in their lifestyle because sometimes these, these difficulties come on so slowly that people make such slow changes that they don't remember that they used to do things a different way. So I encourage them to both take the time to think about things that are happening um, and observe their own behaviors but also to ask the people around them what those those people have observed. Absolutely. So I guess I kind of coach them with the rehearsing from the first time that they walk in the door. Yeah, and I think one of the things you said, which is really important, and, and I get, believe me, I get a lot of calls about this. 
you know, you, you talk to your people a month ahead of time, and I typically do, do three weeks, four weeks, uh, usually, if at all possible. You know, it's a big difference when you have an attorney who will do that because I hear from people who have some of the big box attorneys, and I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, they'll meet their attorney a half an hour before the hearing or they may get a call the day before the hearing. That, that's not really enough, I don't think. I think, you know, this is, yeah. uh, you've, been, you've been waiting two years for a hearing, and, and, you know, to get a half hour before a hearing to have some attorney who you've never met before try to explain to you what to expect, that's really tough. That puts a, a big burden on the claimant. So I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, having a local attorney, having somebody who, you know, spends the time to prepare you is really so important. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's uh, you know there is a difference. There really is a difference uh, in, in who you choose as your attorney. Um, now, when you're talking about symptoms, you know one of the things that comes up a good bit is pain. How do you have your clients describe their pain? When I talk to clients about pain, I always ask them to give me um, kind of like the newspaper, uh, the five W's, except really it's the four uh, with pain because we know who is we know who is being affected by the pain. Um, but I always want to know what kind of pain is it, where is that pain, when does it happen, and why is it happening. It's, it's important for, for clients to understand that they need to be specific about their pain and its location because a hearing is being recorded and it is, um, it's on the record. And the judge, it's not a video hearing, it's, it's just a, a, you know, an audio recording, and the judge and the record as well needs to reflect that when you have pain somewhere, it's on the right side or the left side. Um, you know, if, if somebody has pain in their back, they need to be specific and say if it's the upper back or the lower back or the entire back. Um, it, we, need, we need information about whether or not that pain is moving and whether or not it's in an extremity or if, it's, if it stays in the back. Um, but I always want them to be as specific as possible about how, um, how that pain occurs, um, does it happen upon movement, or does it happen um, by being sedentary and not moving? Um, are there certain positions where it happens, or is it constant? So I try to give them kind of a, a menu of, um, of how, how you can describe pain and pull as much of that out of them as possible. Now, one of the things that judges will talk about um, are activities of daily living, which is just stuff that you do around the house and, and, you know, just in your general life, because what a judge is trying to do is sort of translate that into how you might uh, perform at a job. Um, so how do you talk about or how do you ask questions about activities of daily living? Um, I, I generally, and again, this is something that I start doing from the very first meeting that I have with clients. Um, and, and I tell them sometimes you don't know these answers right away, but you've got time to think about it through the pendency of your case. And I want them to always come up with examples. Um, it is, if someone just says without additional explanation that it's hard for them to stand at the sink for more than 10 or 15 minutes without taking a break, or just stand in general for 10 or 15 minutes without taking a break, it's better and that testimony is enhanced if they can give specifics about um, about where they stand in their in their everyday life, um, what the floor is like, where the pain starts, when the pain starts, 
Um, and, and that is something I do encourage them to keep track of, not necessarily to bring to the hearing with them, but make a list of examples where they know if, if there's this chore that I do around my home, this is what's going to happen as a result. Um, another example that I hear clients often reflect on is, um, is different places that they have to drive. Sometimes I have a client in Johnson City that has to drive to Knoxville for treatment. And because of their back pain, when they're sitting, they have to stop three or four times between here and Knoxville. And that's about an hour and 45 minute drive. Uh, so that's very uh, illustrating to a judge for specifics of, you know, how, how long can this person sit? Well, over the course of an hour and 45 minute drive, they're going to have to take three or four breaks. And that, that creates specifics where there aren't any. Yep, absolutely. I think that you know, this, one of the things that I always tell my clients is you've got to be specific. You, know, you have to eliminate from your vocabulary not very long, not very far, not mm -hmm. much, you know, piddle around the house. Those things don't mean anything. I mean, that's what's something you may say in conversation, but you've got to eliminate that when you're talking to a judge. And I don't know about you, but I'll break in when somebody starts that. I'll say, you know, Mr. Jones, I don't mean to be rude, but let me interrupt you. Not very much doesn't tell us anything. What is, what is not very much? And like you said, you really need to think about that ahead of time, contemplate it, because the time to think about it for the first time is not at your hearing, right? So you, you really have to think about right. that way ahead of time. Um, with regard to the medical treatment specifically, and again, um, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, obviously folks are treating with different doctors, going to different hospitals, getting different types of therapy. How much do they need to remember about specifics, about the names of the doctors, the dates of treatment, the procedures? How specific do people need to get, or do you jump in and help them? How do you deal with that issue? We do, we do kind of a mix. When we first meet with clients, we give them um, paperwork to keep track of the treatment that they're getting. And that first time that we meet with them, we try to get as much of their medical history as possible. And then if, um, like I said, when we, when we send them away, we go ahead and send them with a paper to keep track of all the places they get treatment between the time that we speak with them at that first meeting and the next time that we see them. I think that, um, I think that it is hard to impress how important it is to have as much information as possible about those physicians because it helps us and it helps Social Security to find those records quicker. And the quicker we get those records, the quicker we can get into the meat of the case. If I have someone who tells me that they saw Dr. Smith and he worked at um, you know, Tri-Cities Orzo, it's, it's kind of a generic um, name and kind of a generic facility name. So sometimes that creates homework for us and, and what should take 10 or 15 minutes to locate that record could end up taking much longer. And that's really not where, you know, we want to use our brain power on developing the case and analyzing the medical records that we see. We don't want to spend all of it hunting down records. So, um, so it's very, very important um, to get the case moving along quickly to have all of that information. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things I tell them, because people, some of us, sometimes people will ask me, you know, about the early stages, and this is really sometimes even before they get an attorney, you know, how do they improve their chances for an early approval? And I say, you know, one of the things you can do is, uh, of course, make a list of all your doctors, but call the doctor's office and get the mailing address for medical records. Sometimes a doctor mm -hmm. may have three or four locations, but there's a specific address to request medical records, and if you don't send it to that place, it's going to take a lot longer. 
Um, so for those of you out there who are, um, you know, even at the initial stage when you've just filed an application, you're thinking about getting an attorney, you haven't done it yet, you can really help yourself by calling your, all your doctors, all the hospitals, and get a specific address for medical record requests. You know, if there's a person that it should be addressed to, get that. That goes a, a long way. Um, right. Because, you know, as Holly said, medical records are, you know, kind of the, the currency in a social security disability case. And if you don't have, uh, if you have missing medical records, that's a big problem for not just the claimant, but for the lawyer as well. So uh, we really want to make sure we avoid that, that type of thing. Um, now, as far as getting treatment and, and you know, building one's case, and, and I think that this is something that, um, you know, I, I suspect you talk to your clients about since you're, you're dealing with them, you know, sometimes for, you know, 18 months, two years. What can clients do, what can claimants do to make their medical records stronger, make their case stronger during the course of treatment? I like to talk to my clients about how to talk to their doctors. Um, and and I know that we'll be hitting on that in, in a little bit, but um, but it ties in right here for me as well because... Sure. People tend to underestimate their symptoms. They tend to underreport their symptoms to their treating physicians. And I, I think that one of the things that I, I hear and see most often in records, and I'm sure you see it too, is the doctor writes down a note that says the, um, you know, the patient came in and I asked them how they were doing and they said they were fine. And I always talk to my clients about how you're not fine. You wouldn't be at the doctor's office if you were fine. Um, so I tell them to be as specific as possible when they're speaking to their doctor about what those problems are. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, some doctors, I'm sure you see this as well, they'll make note of the symptoms at the first meeting and then they use electronic record keeping and that same list of symptoms and, and degree of severity sort of flows throughout the treatment record over years. And so, you know, you may have a person who goes in and they're having a certain level of pain and then, you know, the pain may get worse, it may get better, but the records don't reflect that. So I think that when you're talking to your doctor, you definitely want to, you know, make sure you're very clear about that, uh, how, you're, how you are feeling. So don't, you know, so again, just like not very much, not very far, but fine is not a good, not a good thing. Um, right, right. Not a good thing at all. Um, well, and, and, and how do you, so... Them, go ahead. No, no, go, please. I was going to say, I also like to tell them, you know, if you know, if you have back pain and you're going to your doctor and you're having a hard time picking up the groceries or, you know, or, or lifting certain things in the home, like in, everybody says a gallon of milk, right? Um, mm -hmm. A gallon of milk or a container of orange juice or something like that. Tell your doctor that. Um, they, they may not write it down in your records, but they might write it down in your records. And it may actually change the course of your treatment. But if, if you aren't being specific about how your medical problems are impacting your day-to-day -day life, they don't know how to help you. So, um, so, you know, not only will it help your treatment, but it will also help your disability case if your doctor is hearing more of that information about how, how that pain and how your conditions are limiting you. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes? And my ever popular, how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit 
ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay, act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. Now, speaking of, of doctors and disability cases, obviously, uh, I'm sure your clients find this as mine do, that sometimes they, they're reluctant or they don't know how to approach their doctor about getting help for a disability case. And again, I think some doctors you know, don't like the idea of somebody filing for disability because it seems like they've given up, even though it may be just because they have no other choice. But how do you counsel your clients about approaching the doctor, their doctor or doctors, about providing a functional capacity evaluation, a narrative report, something that would help uh, the disability case, or even just telling the doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm not filing for disability. How do you yeah. deal with that? Yeah, and, and just to um, elaborate on what you said, the, that functional capacity report is just so important. And, um, you know, I've certainly had cases be successful without them, but it makes the case so much stronger if you can have a document produced by a doctor that you can, you know, point to the judge and say, even this doctor thinks this person is limited in the ways that they are stating they're limited. Um, but I, um, I, I find, and I don't know if this has been your experience, but I find in that first meeting with my clients, they usually know whether or not their doctor, they have an idea of whether or not their doctor would be supportive. And, um, and if they don't know or if they think they won't be, then what I try to discuss with them is, is, you know, the next time that you go to your doctor's office, discuss with them what your problems are and your limitations and ask them for some guidance. Ask them, well, what are my other treatment options? Um, and then elaborate and, and tell them, you know, I feel like this is keeping me from working um, and see if they seem sympathetic. And if they do, then that's great and continue down that line and see if, if um, you know, they're mention that you've applied for disability and see if they are receptive to that. And if they're not, then um, then obviously you want to take a different approach to that. And I usually tell them to call me. This, if they feel like they're not going to be receptive, I tell them to give me a call and we'll talk about the conversation that they have with their doctor and what kind of different approaches we can take after that. What, yeah, what no, is your experience I think, then? My, I think my experience is really very similar. I, I know some doctors just don't like the idea of people filing for disability. I think it's a very fine line uh, for the claimants because on one hand, you want to present yourself to your doctors as you want to present yourself to a judge as a fighter, somebody who does not want to be pursuing disability and is only doing so as a last resort. Uh, but on the other hand, you have to come across as being realistic that I have tried everything I can. I've been completely compliant with uh, all the medical recommendations. I've tried to work. That's okay. Um, I put my dog up, but we got we just got a new puppy, so uh, I had I told my wife we're, the, the dog has to stay upstairs because otherwise uh, she'd be chewing every wire in my office. <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, I think that yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to make the doctor understand that you are um, you're sincere and that you're only here because you have to be here and you don't want to be. You're reluctant to be pursuing disability, but you really have no other choice. And I think if you your doctor understands that you are not drug-seeking, certainly, you're not malingering, you're not trying to get something for nothing, mm -hmm. and that you, you, know, you're, you have a long work history, you'd much rather be working, but you can't, um, then I think it goes a long way to getting the doctor to become an advocate for you. Some still won't, 
but many times um, doctors can read people, and if they get the sense that you know this person is really trying and just has, has sort of reached their limit, you can sometimes even see in the medical records where there's kind of a shift in in the way things are described, where the doctor clearly buys into uh, the person's you know legitimate concerns. So that's you know I tell my clients you know you've got to really um, make sure your doctor sees you as a sincere sincere but reluctant claimant. Mm-hmm. Um, pursuing disabilities as a last resort, and if you do that, um, you really improve your chances of getting your doctor to be on your side. Even doctors that maybe are reluctant to get involved in disability cases. And, and you know, the other thing I, I tell my, my clients is, you know, some doctors will tell them, "Well, I don't want to get involved in a legal case. I don't have time to go testify." You know, emphasize the doctor in disability cases. It's very rare, almost I've, I've really never seen it, where a doctor would physically come into a hearing. It's all done by paper. That's right. And right, so the rules of evidence are much more relaxed. So the doctor is not going to be hauled into court and waste five hours you know, sitting outside, cooling his heels while you know testimony is going on. So um, right. those are sort of my thoughts about how that, uh, you know, how to get your doctor on your side. But that I think you you identified a, a, a problem, and that is something that a lot of folks deal with, especially now because doctors are busy and you know they don't want to necessarily get involved too much. Um, mm-hmm. So, now, do you have, right, so, we have some facilities here who, who just as a blanket will not complete any forms for us, and we know that. Yep. There's um, yep. maybe two or three. Do you have any like that? I do. There, there's one, and I don't, you know, I don't, I used to see a lot of fibromyalgia cases, and I don't see, see them quite as much anymore um, just because, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, people either are not pursuing disability or um, they get weeded out early. I'm not sure which, but uh, there's one doctor mm-hmm. who apparently is very good at treating you know, a rheumatologist in town who's very good and very popular at treating um, fibromyalgia and, and some certain other autoimmune diseases. And if you look at the, her website, it says, you know, we are a an ability doctor, not a disability doctor. We will not complete forms. Interesting. Um, and I just... Yeah, and, and I never really quite understood that, and, and I've, I've never had a chance to speak to that doctor. But you know, I understand they don't want people to get invested or to be, you know, caught up in the idea that they are disabled and to identify themselves as being disabled, uh, because that could certainly affect their treatment. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are people legitimately who can't work, and if you can't work and and you need the funds from disability and you need the access to Medicare, uh, Medicare then I don't see why a doctor would not cooperate. But, yeah, there are a few mm-hmm. like that, um, uh, but uh, fortunately not too many of them. I think it is a bigger problem, though, to get doctors to fill out forms because, you know, they again, time time is money, and they don't necessarily want to do that. But uh, it is, uh, it's a challenge. But, you know, I tell my clients, just as I'm sure you, do, you mentioned before, having that functional capacity form uh, make, can make a really, really big difference. It really can. Um, so, all right, anything else come to mind about um, hearing testimony, about talking about medical records, anything else that you've observed, any changes you've seen lately? Uh, we're recording this in, in April of 2020. Anything, anything change in your practice? Obviously, we're going to uh, – are you doing the telephone hearings now like, like we are? I am, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and have you gotten to do any yet? Yes, I've had a couple of them. Um, I've got one tomorrow. I've had one the last couple of – had two the last couple of weeks. Uh, we had several uh, canceled or postponed. Then they mm-hmm. ended up where they do the uh, telephone. What? Do, let's talk about that briefly. What difference do you see in preparation, or what clients need to know about telephone uh, hearings? Um, you know, we 
like we said before, I always have a, uh, we call it a pre-hearing meeting about 30 days before the hearing where we rehearse and we do any last minute records requests if if they've seen a doctor um, that, that they've forgotten to tell us about because we have generally requested records long before that. Um, but, um, but now I get to talk to them also about how these telephonic hearings are going. And of course, the way that the uh, Social Security Administration has responded to COVID-19 is to give claimants the opportunity to have a telephonic hearing. Um, and of course, it's the claimant's choice whether they're going to have a telephonic hearing or whether they want to have an in-person hearing. But if they're choosing for an in-person hearing at this point, the Social Security Administration is telling them, you can't have your hearing right now as scheduled. You'll have to have it on down the road when we have reopened our offices to in-person hearings. So We don't know um, when that's, that's going to happen. Right, right. They, I mean, I, I'm sure you participated in the same phone conference with the regional judge that I did, but um, they said specifically that they were indefinitely having hearings by telephone. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's... that's um, that's daunting for claimants who've been waiting for two years to have their case heard. Um, and, you know, we have to, the Social Security Administration has asked us to to ask our clients if they agree with the telephone hearing or if they want to wait for the in-person hearing, get their, their contact information, and they want us to provide the Social Security Administration with our phone number as well as our client's phone number. Um, so far, I have not been in the same room with my clients when we've been doing these telephonic hearings. Uh, We've both been calling in from separate phones. So we have to get our clients permission, we have to get their contact information, and then we have to notify the court that, you know, how we're going to proceed. Um, And then, of course, the the court is calling us to initiate that telephone hearing. Um, And um, I'm sure your, your judges have said the same thing, but our judges have done an introduction in that hearing stating that um, that you are, the claimant is the person who is supposed to testify and that no one's allowed to help them with their testimony and that includes with text or in person and they get a, the judge gets a statement from everyone that they're alone in the room and that there's not someone else in there. Has, have your judges said the same thing? Oh yeah, they absolutely they do that. Um, So that's a new thing to tell my client, you know, that, you know, you're going to have to make sure that you're in a room alone. Um, The only problem that I've had with these hearings so far is that I had one client who it was just very difficult to hear, but the judge Uh seemed to be able to hear that client just fine. I was having difficulty hearing them. So I've, you know, I've started reminding clients, just pay attention to how you're holding your phone, what kind of background Uh noise there is and that sort of thing. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've found is, you know, I, used to, I tell my folks, you know, there are five people in this at a minimum. You've got the judge, the hearing assistant, the vocational witness, the claimant, and the attorney. So, you know, there's five people, and, and you know, the Social Security systems are not that robust, and it can be difficult to hear. So, you know, A, make mm-hmm. sure you're in a quiet room. You know, B, like you said, make sure your phone, you have, if you're talking on a cell phone, that your signal is strong, uh, that you practice that. I also tell people, you know, have a backup number. I've had this, and like I said, I've only had a couple of these hearings, but both of them we had problems getting a hold of the person. You know, I would talk to them. You know, I will typically call them, you know, you know, 20 minutes before the hearing to make sure they're there, everything's ready, no problem. Then I get a phone call from the, the judge's office. Okay, we're going to now patch your client in. They hit the number, and it goes to voicemail, um, or they can't hear. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, you know, you want to make sure that you have not just your main number but a backup number and that there's no TV in the background, there's no screaming kids, there's no anything uh, because, you know, it, it's tough. And another thing I always tell folks is, you know, in a, in a regular hearing, there's a certain energy, if you want to call it, that, you know, somebody having somebody sitting next to you, your attorney, can empower you a little bit. You feel like, okay, mm-hmm. somebody there, they can, you know, they can kind of, not they can't guide you, but they can sort of, you know, they're there for you, supporting you. You know, when you're doing a, a telephone hearing, you don't have that. Even though the attorney's on the line, um, it's not like I can give you a look of encouragement. So that, to me, is the biggest difference. And when I prepare right. my clients, I tell them that. You know, I say, look, you're going to be kind of on your own here. I'll jump in if it's something I can, I can jump in on, but, you know, I can't give you that, you know, look of support. Uh, that I might otherwise do. So that's that's another, I think, an issue that, that's you know a, a less positive issue. But of course, the, you know, getting the hearing done is, is certainly a, a positive thing. Um, and so far, right. the judges seem to be, you know, given that um, vocational uh, obviously capacity is a big issue, but the number of jobs that actually exist is a factor. Um, I think that you know some of the judges I've at least I've been in front of, and it's, it's a very small sample seem to be a little more willing to take testimony as being, you know, accept the testimony as opposed to, you know, being really, really hard and firm about, you know, well, there are jobs out there that you could do. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if it's a lot of questioning you've asked a vocational witness, you know, has that changed? Um, because right now, obviously, there's a lot less jobs out there. That's a good point. That yeah. is a very yeah. good point. We'll see. We'll see. So, yeah, this is, we're, we're in uncharted waters, but, again, I think that the key you know, certainly in the coronavirus time, and it probably will be another maybe a year or two, maybe for longer than that, is preparation. It's just really to understand what the point of the hearing is, how to testify, you know, what happens if your mind goes blank. Um, and, you know, as an attorney, you want to be able to jump in and, and kind of help rescue your client if you can. But uh, the claimants have, I think, you know, more burden because there's nobody there sitting there with them. Um, but preparation is the key, and this is why, you know, as, as, as Holly, you've talked about, you know, having that pre-hearing conference three, four weeks out can make a big difference because it gives you time to really think about it. If you have questions, you call the call your attorney and say, hey, you know, what do I need to do? Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, we're in, we're in different different times now. No, no question right, about it. Right, right. Well, and um, you had asked if anything else had changed, and of course, um, I, you know because of COVID-19, we are all working remotely right now. But we have also um, the, found that the consultative exams where Social Security sends a claimant out to be um, assessed by a doctor and they you know, pay for that assessment, although they make it clear that person doesn't work for them, right? Um, but um, they, uh, they have canceled all of those. Yes. And they are not currently scheduling them. And so that has created a challenge because I have – several clients that I would like to file a motion and ask for them to, to have a consultative exam. Um, and I know that there is a gamble because if I do that, then it may delay their case because right now those exams are happening. So, um, so it has created some complications outside of the hearing in addition to with the hearing. So uh, that was just something I wanted to mention. No, absolutely, and I think that the, the, you know, the consultative evaluations, I think it's really delayed the initial and recon, um, even more so than at the hearing level, because typically by the hearing they've had them, um, and hopefully you have enough evidence already, but I think it's really slowed down the, the adjudication part, you know, and so mm-hmm. as much as, um, you know, the hearings, I, I'm finding, I don't know about you, but I'm finding the hearings are being scheduled a little bit faster than they have been, 
uh, for me, but the problem is the initial and recon are taking longer, so it's, right. no, nobody can't win. It seems you can't right. win losing. Right. Uh, it can be very, very frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. So, anyway. All right, well, Holly, tell me, how, how would somebody, if they wanted to, you're in um, western Tennessee, I believe, Johnson City's in western Tennessee? Eastern, eastern Tennessee. Eastern, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess we had, had to be right. One of my two guesses. Um, and, and what hearing <laughs> offices do you typically cover? Um, I cover the Kingsport Hearing Office, and I also do hearings in Morristown, in Bristol, and in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. And, and if somebody, um, would... mm-hmm. go ahead, go ahead. Um, I was I was else? just going to add that sometimes I go to Knoxville, but not very often. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they find you? Uh, either directly or on the internet. What is your contact information? Yeah, my um, my contact information, my phone number is always the best way to get in touch with us. It's four two three nine two eight eight three two one, and then we have an email set up, and that's info i n f o at legalonmain dot com, and we also have a website that legalonmain dot com, and people can submit inquiries through that website. Okay, and I'm sure you get you know as I do. A lot of people have questions, you know, about Social Security. It's kind of a a, a very um, non-intuitive process, I would say. So I would encourage you, uh, if you're, you know, a claimant or potential claimant in Holly, where in the areas where Holly practices, you know, reach out to her because uh, attorneys uh, like Holly are happy to answer those questions and, and uh, give you information. And you know, even if you don't become a client right away, uh, that's fine. I mean, you know, we're we're out there to help and help educate our public. I think uh, one of the things that uh, you told me before we started was that you had been a teacher before, and I think that uh, being a teacher is, is really a great uh, great background to be a disability attorney. In fact, tell me, do you use that in your in in your practice as you became an attorney? Did you use your teaching background? Has that been helpful to you? Absolutely, and it, and it's it's funny that you should mention that because I I think that as attorneys, not only are we instructing people all of the time, but we're doing homework all of the time too. Um, you know, we are constantly learning new things. The rules are always changing, so we have to stay up to date on those. So we are both educators and students, and um, and I think that that gives us a unique insight into how to convey information to our judges as well as our clients in a way that can help the case be more successful. Very good. Listen, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, we will hopefully talk again soon. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.